Hello, this is Melanie McMullen and Hannah Hurley, and you're listening to the IoT Integrator Wire, brought to you by the channel company and sponsored by Intel. We focus on integrators and innovators who are building Internet of Things technology solutions. Our stories are available online at www.iotintegrator.com, on Twitter at IoT Solution Provider, and on Flipboard at the IoT Integrator Update. And you're listening to episode 24, Inside the Digital Bakery, Crafting 3D Printed Foods. And today we welcome Kyle Von Hasselin. He's the CEO and founder of Current 3D. His company has a sweet new use of technology, 3D printed edible foods. They've created a way to 3D print sculptures and foods that range from unique desserts to margarita limes to kimchi bouillon. This platform, based on dehydrated food printing, was invented by Kyle and his wife, and it's the only food-safe, high-speed 3D food printer capable of large-scale production. Current 3D has built a formidable library of 3D food content and workflows that it uses to produce thousands of printed products in a commercial kitchen in Los Angeles called the Sugar Lab. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and share some insights on what you do at Current 3D. Sure. Well, um, I have a background in biology and architecture. Um, I consider myself an inventor and an entrepreneur. And um, you know, when I got started, I was a 3D designer, so 3D modeler kind of out of architecture. And later in the kind of intermediate stage of my career, I was a director of culinary technology at 3D Systems. And I now run Current 3D and Sugar Lab with my co-founders, Megan Bozeman and William Hu. And um, as CEO, I kind of have my fingers in everything, especially strategy and R&D, but uh, participate really across the board and marketing and sales and even helping out in the kitchen from time to time. <laughs> wow. That's, that's an interesting um, path for your career. So what first caught your interest in 3d printing? Just what was the very first thing you saw that in 3d printing that you found was just fascinating. Probably the first thing that I found really fascinating was, uh, so this would have been while I was in graduate school in architecture around 2009, 10, 11. And I think of that as like the maybe the second wave of 3D printing, but maybe the first really memorable one where it became popularized in part because um, inexpensive 3D desktop printers were available for the first time, including to students like the MakerBot. And uh, those were around at architecture school. And I think I was among the, the first class to really have access to them. And they were really clearly an important prototyping tool in architecture and in other fields. But the thing that probably really inspired me was from outside architecture. I saw um, someone's work. His name is Scott Summit. He was one of the first entrepreneurs that was working with 3D printing, creating, uh, let me see if I can get this right, um, prosthetic components that were fairings, basically to make um, a prosthetic limb beautiful instead of only functional. And that really captured my imagination. So that, that probably put things on the map for me. Well, yeah, that's super interesting. I have seen, you know, so much amazing uses of 3D printing now and, and even in healthcare, I think it's pretty fascinating. So how did you evolve what you knew about 3D printing and move into the food design space? Good question. It took a little bit of time, honestly. I didn't have a background in the culinary space, except for maybe, you know, working as a busboy in, uh, in high school, that sort of thing. But I really didn't I wasn't even a foodie at the time. I wouldn't have described myself that way. So I was really a heads down architecture and industrial design student. And, you know, I had one of those desktop 3D printers that I mentioned earlier, but I was so interested in 3D printing and 
rapid prototyping that went on eBay and Craigslist. And I found these old professional 3D printers that were like a decade old, but they were great 3D printers. I needed to, you know, uh, rent a van and go to drive a thousand miles to pick one up and bring it back. But once I fixed it up, it was great. And it, what I liked about it is, was that it was high capacity. I could print things really quickly and I could print pretty complex objects. And I kind of went through this architectural process where I thought, let me try some other materials in this 3D printer. And I tried sawdust and I tried cement. <clears throat> and one of the ingredients that I chose was sugar. I chose it not as a food item at all. It was inexpensive and it was white. And white as a model is kind of coveted. It's, it's a little bit difficult to get, but it means you, can, you, know, you could airbrush onto it, that sort of thing. And those sugar 3D prints worked really well. They worked better than all of my other experiments. And that really has to do with kind of basic property of sugar, which is, you know, we've all made frosting at home. And if you mix sugar and water in a bowl and you leave it for an hour or so, it becomes really, really rigid. It kind of recrystallizes. And that's what the 3D printer was mimicking. Um, although I didn't probably think of it that way at the time, but it would create these incredible models. And it was months later in a conversation um, with my wife and partner that we kind of thought back about those experiments and wondered, what would it be like if we could make a food 3D printer food safe and you could scale a business? And what if we were a design firm, not an architecture firm, but a design firm for pastry chefs? Would pastry chefs come into our office request fondant in a particular shape for a wedding cake and could we 3D model it? And then could we 3D print it? Could that be a business? It seemed like almost outrageous at the time, you know, this is over 10 years ago, but it also seemed really powerful and kind of just plausible enough that it was exciting and almost like a little terrifying because we wondered, has anybody else had this idea? Is it, is anyone else working on it? So we worked pretty quickly to patent it. I mean, that's fascinating. It's such a nice um, mix of what you know about food and architecture. And it's one of those times when I wish we weren't a podcast, but we were a video cast because I've seen some videos <laughs> of your shapes. And so um, I know that the Sugar Lab, you have a library of really complex um, 3D printed foods and you, you know, you're not just printing out little square chocolates. So describe some of the technology and even the software that you use to build those shapes. Sure. Well, I'm glad you just mentioned, you know, some of the images which you can find online and I'm sure there'll be links to it. And I'm glad that when you reviewed that work, you kind of see instantly the difference between our technology and some of the other three printing technology. All of those technologies have a purpose, but our technology um, is really articulate. It can make very complex shapes, shapes that are interlocked and obviously shapes that have a full range of colors across the surface. And so when we think about design, we really have to think about um, color and geometry at the same time. And you can do that in maybe almost all 3D printing software, but the software that we think is best for color and geometry is actually animation software. So we use Autodesk Maya and Blender, which is an open source um, 3D modeling software. And both of those are animation softwares. Um, you would find them in use at Pixar or um, a gaming company, anybody that's making 3D models that need to be rendered in full color. And that's the exact kind of process that we're up to. We have to think really carefully as we're 3D designing and sculpting in that virtual space, how are we going to apply color to this? And um, so we need that animation software. 
Well, that, yeah, that's fascinating. We did um, get some of your strawberries and I was amazed that every little pox and pixel on the mm -hmm. strawberry was perfect. It was pretty, pretty amazing. I looked at it very closely. So your Sugar Lab Pro concept is designed to sort of take 3D printing and make it more accessible and even scalable for say chefs and event planners. Talk a little bit about the idea behind that and its goals. As I said, when I began there were these co-parallel pathways for 3D printing in the food space. And they both advance, but they both do kind of different things. So there's fused deposition modeling, um, which is what a MakerBot does. And if your listeners aren't familiar with it, it's kind of like extruding frosting out of a bag or extruding hot glue out of a gun. You can kind of layer up a paste of a material. That kind of food 3D printing was going on around 2010, 2011, when I was uh, just starting out. When I saw those images as an architecture student, I was a little confused why that technology was selected in the culinary space. After researching, I came to understand that that technology is very accessible because it's inexpensive. You can quickly make a 3D printer, relatively quickly build a 3D printer that can create food objects through paste extrusion, but you can't really scale it. So it's great for hobbyists and it's great for experimenting and it's great for learning like at a university capacity. But in the culinary space, if you want to make a, a meaningful impact, of course, culinarians like chefs or uh, an event planner needs to make really hundreds of, or thousands of objects a day to be able to service uh, their clientele. And to scale, that meant that we needed to have powder printing technology. And powder printing technology is uh, 3D printing technology occurs when you spread a very fine layer of a powder, which could be confection or sugar. And then on top of that thin layer, you print water, jet water onto the surface, including colored water. And then you spread another layer of powder and you alternate powder, water, powder, water. And everywhere that the water hits becomes the phys physical object that was virtual a moment ago on the computer screen. And that kind of building, it seems subtle and it almost seems like um, insider information to describe the, the two, two different detailed ways of building, but they're fundamentally so different that they have really different consequences. In powder printing, first of all, you can use any dehydrated food powder, which is really amazing in and of itself. And all kinds of foods are dehydrated already and they're really a staple for chefs. So that's a really important component. But you can also build very complex objects. We talked about the little details we were able to get on the surface of a strawberry. You can build complex objects that are hollow. And in fact, those strawberries are hollow. And that's really important for chefs that want to pair food with 3D printed food. And you can build complex geometries that have incredible um, surface texture or even could interlock with powder printing. It would be possible to print a necklace where each link is free moving. And we could just 3D print a sugar ne necklace and like drape it across a cake um, and it would be fully functional. And so that it's pretty amazing capability. And then the last component that makes it so important is that it's fast, it's scalable. In FDM printing, it might take an hour to build one object. In powder printing, we could build a hundred objects simultaneously. And what's really cool is that each of those hundred objects that we're building could be a little bit different. If they were for a wedding, we could 3D print the guest's name um, on each of those hundred items. And that would all be going on 
um, at the same time. Yeah, our goal with at Current3D with this powder printing technology is to make that platform accessible and scalable for existing brands and professionals. They can come to us with an idea and we can help them create that 3D model and print it out and test it and make sure it's working well. And then we can grow and scale with them. They might test it out at a small event. And if it works well, they can come back and ask for 10,000 or 30,000 and we can help them ramp up. I love the way you're describing what you're doing and the technology behind it. It really brings it to life. You talked a little bit about what you saw first in 2008 and 2009. Thinking now, what type of improvements would you like to see in 3D printing technology to make it even better for businesses? That's a really good question. And we think a lot about that at current. One thing I want to be clear about, I think, is that you know it took a, almost a decade for this current 3D printing technology to come into the market. And just now in the last 18 months, it's come into the market and now it's available. And that technology, from my perspective, is state-of-the-art. There's no other powder printing technology like it in the culinary space. And it's really going to open things up for chefs and culinarians and mixologists and event planners and other folks that are in the culinary space or culinary adjacent that we almost haven't even imagined. So we're really at the beginning of something. I think what has to improve are actually kind of the peripheral technologies that are adjacent to culinary and adjacent to culinary 3D printing. One of them uh, that comes up for us a lot is packaging. If we think about like some food that's manufactured that we might love and enjoy like an Oreo cookie or your favorite generic Oreo, right? it comes in this tray and the tray is carefully molded, molded to protect every single Oreo. Maybe there's 30 in there. For our clients, uh, a cavity tray like that, which is a staple of shipping food safely, uh, eggs obviously come in a molded cavity tray, right? Our geometries are different and they're super different. Even for one client, a uh, retail client on Sugar Lab, they might order a set of something and each of those objects is different. And so there's no prototypical cookie. And so there's no perfect mold that you can create to protect it in shipping. And so we're having to dig pretty deep and make some innovations on the shipping and packaging side to carefully protect all of the new incredible geometries that we can make. Another important kind of area of improvement for us on the R&D side would be new food ingredients. We 3D print with sugar quite often at Current 3D because it's, as I mentioned, right, it has this incredible capacity to be really structural. But there are other ingredients that we want to shift to. And we've done a lot of work with um, an alternative uh, plant protein, which is lentil. And we're working pretty hard to make sure that that can be an ingredient as reliable as sugar and can be ready for clients who want to 3D print with lentil. We got to try your strawberries, like Melanie mentioned, and I did notice the packaging. It was almost mm. up perfect for it and it protected it. So I'm glad you talked about that a little bit. I can imagine how difficult that is if everything is being custom built, that then you can't protect it when you're getting it out to your clients. Speaking of the strawberries and some of the other creations you've made, what have been some of your favorite ones and what can we see coming in the future from Sugar Lab? I've had so many favorites across the years and early, um, yeah, I'll just list a few. I mean, when we first started working with pastry chefs, which was almost on day one, they helped us understand that sugar was just one thing that we could 3D print with. There was really a, a range of uh, ingredients that we could 3D print with. Really anything that could be dehydrated, even liquids like a dehyd dehydrated coffee, 
could be 3D printed with, that really up opened things up for us. And one of the first things that they insisted we try was dehydrated fruit powders. Those are super common in the pastry space, a macaroon um, shell, the macaroon kind of cookie component has almond flour, but also often has dehydrated fruit powders. So pastry chefs are like really pointed the way there. So 3D printing with fruit powder was um, a, a real highlight early on. Another early highlight was 3D printing with wasabi. We had green and white wasabi and salt and a little bit of cayenne pepper. And we 3D printed that um, with Chef Mei Lin, who won um, top chef in 2012 or 2015, maybe that was into the shape that wasabi was 3d printed into the shape of a quail egg. And there was a quail yolk jam inside of it. That was a huge revelation to me to see May's Maylin's um, kind of concept for 3d printed food, that it would be just a component of the dish that it could be not just sweet, but actually very, very deeply savory. And then it could be a center of a plate with a, with a protein. That was super cool. And then something more recently that really stood out to me and that I was so happy to see was well-received was that you know the company um, is owned and operated in Los Angeles, California. We have a really diverse city with an amazing food culture. And one of the cool parts about the city is that there's all these little neighborhoods with really authentic food from the neighborhood. And so we thought it would be really cool to do a cultural tour of Los Angeles, visit each of the neighborhoods and create 3D printed food that is reflective of that community and kind of from that community. And so our first stop on that tour was Koreatown. And you can see that collection at sugarlab3d.com. Super proud of it. And uh, we created a 15 set each of uh, these different food concepts. Some are for drinks, some are for dessert, some are for dinner, and each one is a little bit unique. Uh, maybe I'll just explain one of them, which is we created a 3D printed kimchi bouillon, and it has uh, gochugaru, which is a Korean chili powder in it. And so it's a little bit warm and spicy and has these like earthy umami components. And when you drop these 3D printed kimchi bouillons into a dish, like maybe a ramen dish, it just adds this new level of complexity. Plus it's like really fun, which was like a really uh, important component of that food experience. And those kimchi bouillons are in the shape of a squid, of a fried chicken uh, drumstick and of a cabbage, of course. All of that sounds so great. I love the wasabi quail egg visual, visual too. I'm wondering, it sounds pretty high end in a lot of the things that you're doing. Is there a way or what can we do to um, lower the cost so that 3D printing is more accessible to more companies and every type of chef out there? Yeah, that's, a, that's an important criticism. And it, it's been true over the last decade that 3D printed food was pretty expensive, difficult to interact with. And so it was really limited to few people. But I think in the last 18 months, that's really changed. And people are just starting to realize that. Because at Sugar Lab, our retail e-commerce site, the, all of those products have been shipped all over America um, to people that have followed us on Instagram or have seen us profiled on CBS and in other sites. So I think they're becoming now for the first time really accessible. And that's thanks in part to this current 3D powder printing technology that we've developed, which is really high speed. Now it's true that the actual 3D printer itself is pretty expensive. So our concept right now is that for the most part, we'll own and manage those. 
at um, many locations and major cities across the US. And by doing that, we make the technology available because culinarians from that city or, or from another city can meet with us and uh, we can take their idea, transform it digitally, and then 3D print it for them and scale with their business. And those are very affordable. I mean, we have clients from <clears throat> event marketing. We're talking to some clients that are in you know, retirement communities, for example, where um, food can be at a premium. And we have solutions um, for both of you know, a range of clients. So now for the first time, this 3D printed technology is making 3D printed food widely accessible. And I think that we have this tension between accessibility, but also knowledge about the product. And so we need these products to become more well-known so more people find them and we have efficiencies of scale and we can make them even more affordable. And I think one thing that will really do that, honestly, is a few hero products from well-known or well-loved companies. Our kimchi was like maybe a first attempt at that, but Sugar Lab is a small brand. I could picture a brand like Gatorade, for example, 3D printing, an electrolyte sugar droplet that you can add into a water bottle. A uh, hero product like that, I think has the potential to capture the imagination and really make people understand that 3D printed food has arrived in mass and it's available in stores near you and big companies that you know and trust are utilizing it. And I think once we see that, um, that efficiency of scale um, will really turn a corner and we'll be at a greater level of accessibility. Yeah, I think that's really important to have some well-known company kind of drive this forward and get it to a broader audience. I was listening to a podcast recently about sustainable future. And one of the things they spoke about was that it would make more sense to say 3D print a potato chip rather than going under the factory. And I'm wondering, can a manufacturer, for instance, print potato chips as efficiently as it could make them in a traditional factory setting? And that's a great question. Let me kind of broaden a little bit and we'll come back to the potato chip because it's a really good example. I think that one thing listeners need to understand and maybe are becoming familiar with is that as we see 3D printing move into new industries, there are kind of two or three primary ways that sustainability has the capacity to be uh, increased because of 3D printing. One um, is food security. I think that's pretty important. We can imagine 3D printers as distributed forms of manufacturing, where they're at a thousand locations instead of one location. And in terms of food security, right, if there is a war scenario, it would be hard to target, obviously, a thousand locations. And that also has a pretty important consequence for an increasingly urbanized United States that we're seeing. So 3D printing can address food security there. In terms of sustainability, I'd see two main categories. One is that distribution that we just mentioned. Right now, if you want to manufacture food in the legacy model, the legacy production, the legacy distribution, you have to ship all the ingredients to one site and you, you might bake them. And one thing you do when you bake is you kind of add water. So now the object is heavier, the food object, and you have to ship it back out across the country. So it's taken two trips at least <laughs> on, um, on truck burning probably fossil fuels. That's really inefficient. And the way that 3D printing can be a disruptor there is if we have this network of 3D printers that are local to communities um, at current 3D, for example, we could just email our 3D file across the country. And that's so powerful, right? 
we don't have to create a new factory somewhere else. All the data needed to create that food object is in the 3D file and it can be instantly 3D printed at the other end and then delivered locally. So that's a huge inroad. And then the last area is obviously the food ingredients them themselves. We have the ability to kind of redouble the amount of sustainability that is being increased in that distributed manufacturing setting if we use more sustainable ingredients. And we're learning all the time about how to do that. I mean, the biggest one that is so important right now is this transition, at least in part, from animal proteins to plant proteins. And in the case of the potato chip, I mean, there's like kind of two ways to look at it. I think um, I'm a 3D printing food skeptic in one area, which is that, right, some foods are perfect and we never want them to go away. <laughs> That's what I believe. Pizza is perfect. Bread is perfect. A potato chip is perfect. And bread, if you think about it, is like highly technological. It's even bioengineered. It's been being made for a thousand years. Some of those mothers are, uh, our starters are hundreds of years old. And um, it's been those yeast strains have been selected to be perfect in the setting for the kind of bread that you want to create. And even if it was like a folk tradition to hand it down, it's still high tech. It's incredible. And it makes something that you can't make any other way, including by 3D printing. The way I think about 3D printing is, um, right, it has to make inroads and make a space for itself where 3D printing has these features that are important to people. So I think we'll always have the, the humble, incredible potato chip, which is sliced up and fried. But instantly when you were describing that potato chip thing, I wondered, yeah, could it be more sustainable? And here's an example. If we were in touch with potato farmers and they were going to let some amount of their seasonal produce go fallow because they couldn't distribute it quickly enough, you could dehydrate it on site and you'd have a potato powder. You could later 3D print locally with that potato powder. It'd be a shelf-stable powder, so it would last a really long time, which has important sustainability implications. And then if you could leverage the 3D printing technology to create a shape that's novel and has this kind of 3D printed experience that's new for the consumer. So you could probably make a shape that is designed to crunch well. That's a lot like potato chips, but a little bit unlike any exact potato chip you've had. And you could build a following for it and a need for it and a want for it among consumers. And that's, that's really where, that's the kind of direction that I see sustainability and the importance of new novel products in the 3D printed food space. So many fascinating possibilities. It's, it's pretty exciting out there. As you look ahead and even beyond the food industry, what do you see as the biggest growth areas for 3D printing? There's so many. One that we have our eye on is pharmaceutical 3D printing. I think that has the potential to be pretty revolutionary, as revolutionary as in the culinary setting, because it's really just at the ground level in it. And shape and geometry have really big consequences in the food setting for food experiences and the way that we eat. But they also, but also shape and geometry have really big implications for 3D printed pharmaceuticals. To give an example, I mean, there's so many examples to choose from, but one that really stood out to me when it was described to me first was in a case that any uh, parent is familiar with, you know, if you have a child under 10 or so, 
it can be really difficult to administer, you know, a common drug that might be helpful to the child in that moment or necessary. And uh, that's because, you know, the child might not want to not might not be able to swallow a pill or the liquid that they need to swallow um, is distasteful. But 3D printed drugs could be more edible, they could be easily digestible, they could be tasty, even and they could be in shapes that might be compelling and like, kind of help kids um, get over their fear of uh, needing to swallow a pharmaceutical. And that has huge implications for parents and for children. That's just one example. At Current3D, we've partnered with this group called Apricia Pharmaceuticals. They have an amazing technology, which, which I'll mention, but I want to say that you know, they really got their start in generics and making generics more widely available in the U.S., which is a really important thing to be doing. And the reason that we're working with Appreciate Pharmaceuticals is, is they have a really similar platform that, that we utilize as well, which is that powder printing technology. It just means that we've seen a few areas of collaboration and we're really excited for a future where there could be potentially a nutraceutical or wellness product that is a bridge between the two companies or even using their incredible 3D printing technology to print food for some companies. This is Melanie McMullen and Hannah Hurley, and you've been listening to the IoT Integrator Wire sponsored by Intel. You can learn more about IoT solutions on our website at www.theiotintegrator.com or follow us on Twitter at IoT Solution Provider and on Flipboard at the IoT Integrator Update. Thanks for listening and stay connected.